Chapter 11, The Challenge Facing Trinitarianism Today. I begin with a quotation from the Oxford Companion to the Bible. The developed concepts of three co-equal partners in the Godhead, found in later creedal formulations, cannot be clearly detected within the confines of the canon. Contemporary Trinitarianism faces a formidable battery of arguments which have undermined some of its cherished biblical so-called proofs. Unknown to most churchgoers, there's a corpus of non-Trinitarian, in fact, if not in name, rather than anti-Trinitarian literature, which in various ways abandons some of the main props of Trinitarianism. Anti-Trinitarianism has long presented its case by showing that various Orthodox Trinitarians have explained key Trinitarian verses in a Unitarian way, a remarkable compendium of concessions of Trinitarians, that was the name of the book, was produced by John Wilson in 1845. The work has relevance for the ongoing discussion of the Trinity. Surveying a vast amount of scholarly writing, it documents non-Trinitarian explanations by Trinitarians of verses popularly thought to support the Trinity. Contemporary as well as 19th century theological literature provides evidence of similar concessions. This chapter examines some of the points presented as Trinitarian so-called proofs in more popular literature on the Bible. It appears that a large number of Trinitarians no longer rely on these arguments to support an orthodox view of the Godhead. The plural form of Elohim. The organization Jews for Jesus and other evangelical groups continue to find the triune God in the Hebrew scriptures. The plural form of the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, however, does not provide clues pointing to the Trinity. It is as misleading to talk of Elohim as a so-called uniplural word as it is to say that Echad, the word one, hints at a plural Godhead. One cannot successfully argue the Trinity from the fact that Echad can modify a noun like cluster or herd, and therefore might lead us to think that God is compound. The word Echad is simply the numeral one in Hebrew. Yahweh is one Lord. So the Creed of Israel states in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Echad appears as a modifier for Abraham, Ezekiel 33, verse 24, and Isaiah 51, verse 2, and it may sometimes be properly rendered as unique, as in Ezekiel 7, verse 5. Its normal, regular meaning is one and not two. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 8. There's nothing at all in the word Yahweh 
which suggests a plurality, especially since the word occurs with singular verbs and pronouns in all of its multiple thousands, about 5,500 times. All of those occurrences show no evidence at all of plurality. If singular pronouns constantly designating the one God cannot persuade the reader that God is a single individual, there is little else in language that can. Elohim has singular verbs in all of its 2,500 references to the one God. An occasional anomaly proves as little as the fact that Joseph's master is described by a plural noun several times in Genesis 39, verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, verse 19, verse 20. Will anyone contend that Joseph's master, the word there for master is plural in Hebrew, will anyone contend that the verb took, which is singular as a verb, is incorrectly translated? Abraham is the master's, plural in Hebrew, of his servant in Genesis 24, verses 9 and 10. Is there therefore plurality in Abraham? No one would want to alter the translation of another passage in Genesis. I quote, The man who is Lord of the land spoke harshly to us. But though the verb is singular, the noun there has a plural form, the lords of the land. See also Genesis 42, verse 33. I quote, The man who is lords of the land. We have in these examples the same plurality in Abraham, Potiphar, and Joseph as is supposedly found in Elohim when it refers to the Supreme God. These facts warrant the observation of the writer in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. I quote, It is exegesis of a mischievous, if pious, sort that would find the doctrine of the Trinity in the plural form of Elohim. That's from the article on the Trinity in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. The article on God in the same encyclopedia concludes, quote, there is in the Old Testament no indication of distinctions in the Godhead. It is an anachronism to find either the doctrine of the Incarnation or that of the Trinity in its pages. That's from an article on God in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics by W.T. Davison. The definition of Elohim, God, supplied by the Illustrated Bible Dictionary, contradicts the notion that God is three persons. Though a plural form, Elohim, can be treated as a singular, in which case it means the one supreme deity. There is only one supreme God, and he is a person. God is one. The consideration of the use of the numeral one in connection with God is enlightening. No one has any difficulty with the following statements. 
According to Ezekiel, quote, Abraham was one. The Hebrew word echad and the Greek word is. That's Ezekiel 33, verse 24. The NIV translates this fact into plain English. Abraham was only one man. Jesus uses the word one in the same way to mean a single individual. I quote, do not be called rabbi, for one, Greek word is, is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one, the word is is, one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one, the Greek word is, is your leader, that is, Christ. That's a quotation from Matthew 23, verses 8 to 10. In each case, the word one obviously means one person. For Paul, Christ is, quote, one person, is. I quote, God does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Galatians 3.16. A few verses later, exactly the same language applies to God. Paul says, now a mediator is not for one party, not for one party only, literally in the Greek, not of one, the word is is, but God is one. Galatians 3 verse 20. The meaning is that God is one party or one person. All this is consistent with the uniform testimony of Scripture that the one God is the Father of Jesus. It is true that is, meaning one, can designate a collective unity. You are all one in Christ, Galatians 3.28. The meaning is quite inappropriate in the case of God, who is constantly described by singular pronouns and equated with the Father, who is obviously and plainly one person. These facts present an acute problem for Trinitarianism, some have been driven to the extreme of maintaining that the word Father in the New Testament may describe not one person of the Trinity, but all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I quote, Sometimes Father is used not of one who is distinct from the Son and Holy Spirit, a distinct person of the Godhead, but Father is used of the Godhead himself. Let us give some examples of this. Paul says that there is only one God who has real existence, and it is the one that Christians worship. So he writes, But to us there is but one God, the Father. Here the word Father equals the words one God. Paul is saying that there is but one God 
but he's not thinking of the persons of the Godhead at all. It is in this sense that Paul uses the word Father, just as he does in Ephesians 4 verse 6, where he writes of one God and Father of all. That's from a book by Stuart Olliot, The Three Are One, written in 1979. This same writer struggles with Paul's plainly Unitarian definition of God as, quote, one God the Father. The strength of Eliot's own conviction that God is really three forces him to imagine that the Father actually means three persons. This theory is, of course, imaginary. The writer cannot allow himself to think that Paul might not have been a Trinitarian. Trinitarians are trapped by the well-worn slogan that Jesus must be either a liar, a lunatic, or the supreme God. They have not been able to conceptualize another category, that of the Messiah. When Anderson Scott described the view of Jesus presented by the book of Revelation, he gave us the clue to the biblical picture of Jesus. I quote, John, in the book of Revelation, carries the equating of Christ with God to the furthest point, short of making them eternally equal. That's from the article on Christology in the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church. Assessing Paul's Christology, he says, St. Paul never gives to Christ the name or description of God, Reviewing the whole of Paul's utterances regarding Christ, the total impression is that of a monotheistic conviction, consistently resisting the impulse to do this very thing, that is, to call Jesus God. The correctness of this evaluation is confirmed by the startling fact that there is no text in the New Testament in which the term Theos, that is God, means, quote, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reason, of course, is that no writer thought that God was three in one. It ought to be a matter of concern to Trinitarians that when they say God, they mean the triune God. But when the New Testament, or indeed the whole Bible, says God, a triune God, is never meant. It would be hard to find more conclusive evidence that the triune God is not the God of Scripture. Our point is confirmed by Karl Rahner. I quote, Nowhere in the New Testament is there to be found a text with Theos, literally the God, which has unquestionably to be referred to the Trinitarian God as a whole, existing in three persons. In by far the greater number of texts, Orthos, the God, refers to the Father as a person of the Trinity. We disagree, of course, that the Father is part of a Trinity, but Rana's observation is correct. God in the New Testament almost invariably means the Father of Jesus, and never three persons or 
persons with a capital P. An important question about Trinitarianism is raised by the complete lack of evidence for the doctrine of the Incarnation in the Gospel of Luke. And the same may be said of Matthew. Raymond Brown observes, quote, there is no evidence that Luke had a theology of incarnation and pre-existence. Rather, for Luke, as in Luke 1, verse 35, divine sonship seems to have been brought about through the virginal conception. Jesus was conceived and born, and that is solidarity enough with the human race. That's from Raymond Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah. Luke defined who Jesus was with complete precision when he first called him, quote, the Lord Messiah, that is, the Lord Christ, and a few verses later designated Jesus as, quote, the Lord's Christ or Messiah. You'll find those two verses in Luke 2, verse 11, and Luke 2, verse 26. The title, quote, Lord Messiah, is found also in Jewish literature contemporary with Luke. For example, in the Psalms of Solomon, 17, verse 32, and chapter 18, verse 7. That title describes the promised deliverer of Israel, the age-old hope of the nation. The same messianic description is given to a historical sovereign of Israel in the Septuagint rendering of Lamentations 4 verse 10. In no case does this royal title imply that the Messiah is God. The title Lord for Jesus is derived from Psalm 110 verse 1, where the Messiah is to be David's Lord with lowercase l, that's to say his king. Luke selects a second title for Jesus, the Lord's apostrophe s, the Lord's Messiah, because it is exactly equivalent to the Old Testament expression, the Lord's anointed, the King of Israel. David speaks of King Saul as my Lord, the Lord's anointed, or Messiah. 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, compare verse 10. Abner should have guarded Saul, quote, the Lord, lowercase l, the Lord your king, or, quote, your Lord, the Lord's, with capital L, the Lord's anointed, or Messiah. 1 Samuel 26, verse 15 and 16. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one, the promised king of Israel. Luke's descriptions of him are in complete harmony with John, who introduces Jesus as, quote, son of God and king of Israel. John 1, verse 49. Paul recognizes that Christians serve, quote, the Lord Messiah, Colossians 3, 24. And Peter who had declared in an earlier sermon that God had appointed Jesus Lord and Messiah, Acts 2.36, towards the end of his life urges believers to sanctify the Lord Christ or Messiah in your hearts. 
1 Peter 3, verse 15, in the last book of the Bible, the glorified Jesus is still, quote, the Lord's anointed, or Messiah. Revelation 11, verse 15, and Revelation 12, verse 10. The much overlooked title of Jesus as the Lord Messiah is constantly brought before us in the New Testament's favorite name for him, the Lord Jesus Messiah. Trinitarianism confuses the Lord God with the anointed or appointed Lord, the King. The category of Messiah is entirely adequate to account for the New Testament understanding of Jesus. The Bible does not need the so-called help of further developments in Christology which go beyond the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. As Christ, Jesus is the perfect image of the one God. The character and work of Jesus demonstrate the character and work of his Father as an agent represents his sender. It is an uphill battle for Trinitarians to support the notion of so-called eternal sonship from Scripture. A contemporary Trinitarian informs us that Jesus proceeded, and I quote, by eternal generation as the Son of God from the Father in a birth that never took place because it always was. That's from Kenneth Weiss in a book, Great Truths to Live By, written in 1952. We wonder whether such mystifying language helps to promote the truth of the Christian faith. In Scripture, the begetting of the Son did indeed take place, and it took place in time. The classic prediction of the Messiah's appointment to kingship appears in Psalm 2, verse 7. The one God declares, quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Luke knew that the Son of God was miraculously begotten, that's to say, brought into existence in the womb of Mary. Luke 1, verse 35. In a sermon at Pisidian Antioch, Paul preached about the birth of the Messiah, showing that God had raised up Jesus, that's to say, brought him on the scene, fulfilling the begetting or begettal prediction of Psalm 2. For this reference, please see Acts 13, verse 33, quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. Raising up here refers most naturally to the birth of Jesus, not his resurrection. Paul goes on to refer to the raising of Jesus from the dead in the next verse, verse 34. The King James Version seems to have confused the issue by inserting, wrongly, the word again after raised up in verse 33. Luke had already used the same expression, raise up, meaning the birth of the promised prophet. Acts 2, verse 30. Acts 3, verse 22. Acts 3, verse 26. And Acts 7, 
verse 37. There's no such thing in Scripture as a begetting or generation of the Son in eternity other than in the decrees of God. A distinguished Trinitarian of the last century expressed his bewilderment at the idea of a sonship which has no beginning and thus of the whole doctrine of an eternal son, so-called. Speaking of Luke 1 verse 35, Adam Clark noted, I quote, we may plainly perceive here that the angel does not give the appellation of Son of God to the divine nature of Christ, but rather to the holy person or thing, to aion in the Greek, which was to be born of the Virgin by the energy of the Holy Spirit. Here I trust that I may be permitted to say, with all due respect to those who differ from me, that the doctrine of the eternal sonship of Christ is, in my opinion, anti-scriptural and highly dangerous. This doctrine I reject for the following reasons. Firstly, I have not been able to find any express declaration in the scriptures concerning it. Secondly, if Christ is the Son of God as to his divine nature, then he cannot be eternal. For Son implies Father, and Father implies the idea of generation, and generation implies a time in which it was effected, and time also antecedent to such generation. Thirdly, if Christ is the Son of God, as to his divine nature, then the Father is of necessity prior, consequently superior to him. Fourthly, again, if this divine nature were begotten by the Father, then it must be in time. That's to say, there was a period in which it did not exist and a period when it began to exist. This destroys the eternity of our blessed Lord and robs him at once of his Godhead. Fifthly, to say that he was begotten from all eternity is, in my opinion, absurd. And the phrase eternal son is a positive self-contradiction. Eternity is that which has no beginning, nor stands in any reference to time. But the word son supposes time, generation, and father, and time also antecedent to such generation. Therefore, the conjunction of these two terms, Son and Eternity, is absolutely impossible as they imply essentially different and opposite ideas. End of quotation from Clark's commentary, written in 1837. His commentary in this case on Luke 1, verse 35. An eminent biblical scholar known as, quote, the father of American biblical literature, Moses Stewart had the following to say on this subject. He spoke as a Trinitarian. I quote, The generation of the Son as divine as God seems to be out of the question, unless it be an express doctrine of revelation, which is so far from being the case that I can see that the contrary is plainly taught.
as from Moses Stewart's book, Answer to Channing, cited by Wilson in his Concessions. Discussion of the Trinity often centers around a handful of New Testament verses which are meant to prove that Jesus is the supreme deity rather than the perfect reflection of deity, the authorized human ambassador of the one God. Some modern proponents of Trinitarianism produce these verses as though it were self-evident that their testimony favors Trinitarianism. There's a strong tradition amongst Trinitarians of the highest repute, however, that these texts do not establish the deity of Jesus is quite clear. Titus 2 verse 13 and 2 Peter 1 verse 1. A number of contemporary discussions advance the so-called Granville-Sharps rule to support their claim that Jesus is called, quote, the great God and Savior in Titus 2 verse 13. Sharp contended that when the Greek word ke, meaning and, joins two nouns of the same case and the first noun has the definite article and the second does not, then the two nouns refer to one subject. Hence, the disputed verse should read, Our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, and not, as the King James Version has it, the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. The rule about the omission of the article, however, cannot be relied on to settle the matter. As Nigel Turner who wrote as a Trinitarian says, Unfortunately, at this period of Greek, we cannot be sure that such a rule is really decisive. Sometimes the definite article is not repeated, even when there is clearly a separation in idea. He said this, The repetition of the article was not strictly necessary to ensure that the items be considered separately. That's from Nigel Turner's statement in the Moulton Howard Turner Grammar, Volume 3. Reference there was to Titus 2, verse 13. We find this statement also in Grammatical Insights into the New Testament of 1965. A very unfortunate misprint occurs in Nigel Turner's statement. The word not is omitted before the word repeated, exactly reversing Turner's intention to point out that the article does not have to be repeated to separate two distinct subjects. We had ample opportunity to discuss this matter with the late Dr. Turner. Since the absence of a second article is not decisive, it is natural to see here the appearing of God's glory as it is displayed in his Son at the Second Coming, the Parousia. There's an obvious parallel with Matthew's description of the arrival of Jesus in power. I quote, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Matthew 16, verse 27. Since the Father confers his glory upon the Son, 
as he will also share it with the saints, it is most appropriate that father and son should be closely linked. Paul had only a few verses earlier spoken of, quote, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour, Titus 1 verse 4. A wide range of grammarians and biblical scholars have recognized that the absence of the definite article before our Saviour Jesus Christ is quite inadequate to establish the Trinitarian claim that Jesus is here called the Great God. At best, the argument is dubious. So says Raymond Brown in his book, Jesus, God, and Man. It is unfortunate, as Raymond Brown says, that no certainty can be reached here, for it seems that this passage is the one which shaped the confession of the World Council of Churches in, quote, Jesus Christ as God and Savior. Compare with this Nels Ferre's objection this title, God and Saviour, implies a docetic Jesus, that's to say, a Jesus who is not really human. So we ask, is the basis of the world council heretical? It should also be noted that the Roman Emperor could be called God and Saviour, without the implication that he was the supreme deity. Even if the title God and Saviour were most exceptionally used of Jesus, it would not establish his position as co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. It would rather designate him as the one God's supreme agent, which is the view of the whole Bible. The same grammatical problem faces expositors in 2 Peter 1 verse 1. Henry Alford is one of the many Trinitarians who argue that Jesus is not called God in this verse. For him, the absence of the article is outweighed here, as in Titus 2.13, by the much more significant fact that both Peter and Paul normally distinguish clearly between God and Jesus Christ. The writer of the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges agreed that, quote, the rule that the one article indicates the one subject cannot be too strongly relied on as decisive. As a quotation from A.E. Humphreys in the Epistles to Timothy and Titus in the Cambridge University Bible Commentary, written in 1895. A Trinitarian writer of the last century was much less generous to those who sought proof of the deity of Christ in the omission of the article. I quote, some eminently pious and learned scholars have so far overstretched the argument founded on the presence or absence of the article as to have run it into a fallacious sophistry. And in the intensity of their zeal to maintain the so-called honor of the sun, they were not aware that they were rather engaged in dishonoring the Father. That's a quotation from Granville Penn in Supplemental Annotations to the New Covenant. 
Romans 9 verse 5. Some Trinitarians offer Romans 9 verse 5 as conclusive proof that Jesus is, quote, God over all and therefore part of the Godhead. It depends which translation one reads because there are some seven different ways of punctuating the verse in which either Christ or the Father is called, quote, God blessed forever. I note that for a full examination of the various possibilities, one should see the essays in the Journal of the Society of Biblical Literature and Exegesis in 1883. The issue is, should we read, quote, of whom according to the flesh is Christ, who is over all, God be blessed forever, or of whom according to the flesh is Christ, who being God over all, is blessed forever. Among older commentators, Erasmus, though himself a Trinitarian, was cautious about using this verse as a proof text. He said, Those who contend that in this text Christ is clearly termed God either place little confidence in other passages of Scripture, deny all understanding to the Arians, or pay scarcely any attention to the style of the Apostle. A similar passage occurs in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 31, quote, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, the latter clause being undeniably restricted to the Father. That's a quotation from the works of Jean Leclerc, in 1706. Using the principle of comparison of text with text, it is most likely that Paul describes the Father as, quote, God over all. Paul uniformly makes a distinction between God and the Lord Jesus. In the same book, Paul blesses the Creator, and there's no reason to doubt that the Father is meant, as in Romans 1, verse 25. In another passage, Paul speaks of, quote, God our Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Galatians 1, verses 4 and 5. Romans 9, verse 5 is an obvious parallel. It should not be forgotten that the word theos, meaning God, occurs more than 500 times in Paul's letters. And there's not a single unambiguous instance in which it applies to Christ. A number of well-known textual critics, Lachmann, Tischendorf, for example, place a period after the word flesh, allowing the rest of the sentence to be a doxology to the Father. Ancient Greek manuscripts do not generally contain punctuation, but the Codex Ephraimi of the 5th century does have a period after the word flesh. More remarkable is the fact that during the whole Arian controversy, this verse was never used by Trinitarians against the Unitarians. 
it clearly did not attest to Jesus as the second member of the Godhead. In modern times, Raymond Brown finds that, quote, at most one may claim a certain probability that this passage refers to Jesus as God. That's from Raymond Brown's book, Jesus, God and Man. In the conservative Tyndale commentary on Romans, F.F. F. Bruce warns against charging those who treat the words as applicable to the Father with Christological unorthodoxy. It is proper to add that even if Jesus is very exceptionally called God, the title may be used in its secondary messianic sense of one who reflects the divine majesty of the one God, his Father. When the detail of grammatical nuance has been fully explored, balances of probability will be weighed in different ways. It is incredible to imagine that the Christian creed should depend on fine points of language about which many could not reasonably be asked to make a judgment and experts disagree. The plain language of Paul's and Jesus' creed is open to every student of the Bible. I quote, there is no God except one. There is for us Christians one God, the Father. That's from 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 and 6. That one God is as distinguished in Paul's mind from the one Lord Jesus Messiah as he is from the many gods of paganism. The category of, quote, one God belongs exclusively to the Father and that of Lord Messiah exclusively to Jesus. Jesus himself had provided the basis of Paul's simple understanding of the phrase one God. Both master and disciple shared the creed of Israel who believed in God as one unique person. John 1 verse 1 has been subjected to a minute analysis by commentators of every shade of opinion. It is obvious that some modern translations are blatantly Trinitarian interpretations. The Living Gospels, written in 1966, reads as follows. I quote, before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is himself God. But that is to raise the whole Trinitarian problem. Suddenly God is two persons. A little known fact is that the word word was not assumed to be a second person in translations prior to the King James Version. The Bishop's Bible of 1568 replaced by the King James Bible in 1611, understands the word, with lowercase w, to be impersonal and uses the pronoun it, as does also the Geneva Bible of 1560. It is an assumption that by word, lowercase w, John meant a second, uncreated personal being alongside the one God. 
John elsewhere recognizes that the Father is, quote, the only true God, John 17, 3. And I quote again, the one who alone is God, John 5, verse 44. Many have recognized an obvious connection between the, quote, word and what is said of wisdom in the Hebrew Bible. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified and is said to be with God. Proverbs 8, verse 30. John says that the word, lowercase w, was with, pros is the Greek word there, with God. In the Old Testament, a vision, a word, or purpose is said to be with the person who receives it or possesses it. The word has a quasi-existence of its own. Quote, the word of the Lord is with him. Or again, the prophet has a dream with him. It was in the heart of David, literally, quote, with his heart to build a temple. Wisdom is with God, as we find several places in the Old Testament scriptures. 2 Kings 3, verse 12, Jeremiah 23, verse 28, 1 Kings 8, verse 17, 2 Chronicles 6, verse 7, Job 12, verse 13 and 16, Job 10, verse 13. The phrase with you is parallel to, quote, concealed in your heart. That's to say, fixed in your decree. See also Job 23, verses 10 and 14. The latter phrase, with God, is strikingly parallel to John's opening sentence. In the New Testament, something impersonal can be, quote, with a person. As, for example, where Paul hopes that, quote, the truth of the gospel might remain with, pros, you. That's to say, present to the mind. Galatians 2, verse 5. At the opening of John's first epistle, which may provide just the commentary we need on John 1.1, he writes that, quote, eternal life was with pros, with the Father. 1 John 1 verse 2. On the basis of these parallels, it's impossible to say with any certainty that the word, lowercase w, in John 1, 1 to 2, must mean a second member of the Trinity, that is, God the Son, so-called, pre-existing. John goes on to say that, quote, the word was God, John 1, 1. Intense discussion of the exact meaning of God, which has no definite article here, has made the whole passage seem complex. According to some, a rule established by Colwell demands that the absence of the article does not weaken John's intention to say that the word was fully God and identified with him. Others have insisted that God, without the article, is John's way of telling us 
that the word had the character of God and was fully expressive of his mind. The Trinitarian Bishop Westcott's opinion is much respected and has the tentative approval of Professor Mole. I quote Bishop Westcott's note on John 1 verse 1, although it may require the addition of some reference to idiom, does still perhaps represent John's intention. I quote, God is necessarily without the article, as to say theos, not otheos, inasmuch as it describes the nature of the word and does not identify his person. It would be pure Sabellianism or modalism to say that the word was Theos, the one God. The bishop's point was that the word word, lowercase w, cannot be distinct from God as being with God and at the same time identified with him. This would blur all distinction in the Godhead. Rather, John describes the nature of the word and the absence of the article before God quote, places stress on the qualitative aspect of the noun rather than its mere identity. An object of thought may be conceived of from two points of view as to identity or quality. To convey the first point of view, the Greek uses the article. For the second, it has the absence of the article. That's a quotation from Dana and Manti, a manual grammar of the Greek New Testament, written in 1955. After a close analysis, Philippana suggests perhaps the clause should be translated, the word had the same nature as God. He adds that, quote, there is no basis for regarding the predicate theos as definite. Thus, says another scholar, John 1, verse 1, part B, denotes not the identity, but rather the character of the Logos. The difficulty facing translators is how to convey these subtle nuances in English. James Denny insisted that the New Testament does not say what our English translations suggest, namely, the word was God. He meant that in Greek, God, the word theos, without the article, really means having the quality of God, not being one-to-one -one identified with God. That's from the book Letters of Principal James Denny to W. Robertson Nicoll, written in 1920. One attempt to convey the right shade of meaning is found in the translation, the word was God, with lowercase g. That's C.C. Torres, The Four Gospels, a new translation written in 1947. Unfortunately, standard English translations convey the wrong sense. As Hannah says, the problem with all these translations, the RSV, the Jerusalem Bible, the New English Bible, and Good News for Modern Man, is this, that they could represent the idea that the Word and God are interchangeable. The prologue to John's Gospel does not require belief in a Godhead 
of more than one person. It is most likely that John is correcting a contemporary Gnostic tendency to distinguish God from lesser divine figures. John's intention is to bind the wisdom or word of God as closely as possible to God himself. The word is God's own creative activity. Thus John says that from the beginning, God's wisdom, which the one God had with him, as an architect has his plan, was fully expressive of God. It was God himself in his self-manifestation. All things were made through this plan. The same word, with lowercase w, was finally embodied in a human being, the Messiah, when Jesus was born, when, quote, the word became flesh. John 1, verse 14. Jesus is therefore what the word, lowercase w, became. He is the perfect expression of the mind of God in human form or a human being. Jesus is not to be identified one-to-one with the word, lowercase w, of John 1, verse 1, as though the Son existed from the beginning. Jesus is the divinely authorized messenger of God and, like the word, lowercase w, has the character of God. James Dunn's conclusion about John's intention confirms a non-Trinitarian reading of John 1, 1 1-3, and John 1, verse 14. I quote, The conclusion which seems to emerge from our analysis of John 1, 1-14 thus far is that it is only with verse 14, where it says that the Word became flesh, only there that we can begin to speak of the personal logos. The poem uses rather impersonal language, like became flesh, but no Christian would fail to recognize here a reference to Jesus. The Word became not flesh in general, but Jesus Christ. Prior to verse 14, we are in the same realm as pre-Christian talk of wisdom and logos, the same language and ideas that we find in Philo, where, as we have seen, we are dealing with personifications rather than persons. As to say, personified actions of God rather than an individual divine being as such. The point is obscured by the fact that we have to translate the masculine logos as he throughout the poem. But if we translated logos as God's utterance instead, it would become clearer that the poem did not necessarily intend the logos of verse 1 to 13 to be thought of as a personal divine being. In other words, the revolutionary significance of verse 14 may well be that it marks not only the transition in thought of the poem from pre-existence to incarnation, but also the transition from impersonal personification to actual person.
That's from Professor James Dunn's book, Christology in the Making. And I note that it's entirely unnecessary to talk about the logos, which is grammatically masculine, as having to be translated as he. That's completely arbitrary. It's only if you've decided that the logos is a person, before verse 14, only then would you say he. But there's nothing whatsoever in the grammatically masculine word logos to force you into saying he. It would be the first choice of translation. This reading of John, supported so well by Professor James Dunn, has the enormous advantage of harmonizing John with the testimony of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and allowing the undivided unity of the one God, the Father, to remain undisturbed. Mark 13, verse 32. This verse reports Jesus' statement that he did not know the day of his return. It seems plainly contradictory to assert that omniscient deity can be ignorant in any respect. Some Trinitarians appeal to the doctrine of the divine and human natures in Jesus to solve the problem. It is said then that the Son did in fact know, but as a human being he did not know. This seems little different from saying that one is poor because one has no money in one pocket, though in the other pocket one has a million dollars. In this text, it is the Son, as distinct from the Father, who did not know. It is therefore quite impossible to plead that only the human nature in Jesus was ignorant. The Bible, anyway, does not distinguish natures in Jesus as Son of God and Son of Man. Both are messianic titles for the same one person. If a witness in a court of law were to be asked whether he had seen the defendant on a certain day, and he replies in the negative, meaning that he had not seen him with his defective eye, though he did with his sound eye, we would consider him dishonest. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son, he could not have meant a part of himself. The theory by which Jesus did and did not know the day of his future coming would render all of his sayings unintelligible. The plain fact is that a confession of ignorance is incompatible with the theory of the absolute deity of Jesus. A comparable difficulty faces Trinitarians when they assert that only the human part of Jesus died. If Jesus were God, and God is immortal, Jesus could not possibly have died. We wonder how it is possible to maintain that Jesus does not represent the whole person. Nothing in the Bible suggests that Jesus is the name of his human nature only. If Jesus is the whole person and Jesus died, he cannot be immortal deity. It appears that Trinitarians argue that only deity is sufficient to provide the necessary atonement. But if the divine nature did not die, how, on the Trinitarian theory, is the atonement secured? It is hard to understand why God, if he so chooses, may not appoint a uniquely conceived or begotten 
sinless human being as a sufficient offering for the sins of the world. It is unconvincing to insist that only the death of an eternal person can atone for sin. Scripture does not say so. It does, however, say that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died and that God is immortal. The inference as to the nature of Jesus seems inescapable. Matthew 1, verse 23, and Isaiah 7, verse 14. It is sometimes asserted that the name Emmanuel, God is with us, given to Jesus, proves that he is God. If that were so, then the child born soon after the prediction was given by Isaiah in the days of Ahaz would also have been God. The name, however, does not tell us that Jesus is God, but that in his life God has intervened to save his people. The parents who in the Old Testament times called their son Ithiel, in Proverbs 30, verse 1, which means God is with me, those parents did not believe their offspring to be deity. Names of this type indicate the divine event associated with the life of the individual so named. God, the father of Jesus, was certainly with Israel as he worked through his unique son. In the life of Jesus, the son of God, God had indeed visited his people. A Trinitarian scholar of the last century wrote, and I quote, to maintain that the name Emmanuel proves the doctrine of the deity of Jesus is a fallacious argument, although many Trinitarians have urged it. Jerusalem is called Jehovah our righteousness. Does that mean that Jerusalem is also divine? That was a question from Moses Stewart in a work entitled Answer to Channing. John 10 verse 30. In this verse, Jesus claimed to be, quote, one with his Father. The word one in this much-discussed text is the Greek term en. It is not the masculine numeral is, which describes the Godhead in the Christian creed announced by Jesus in Mark 12, verse 29. It is unfair that the Jehovah's Witnesses are sometimes attacked in popular presentations of the Trinity for saying only what even conservative evangelical commentators admit. I quote, the expression, I and the Father are one, seems mainly to imply that the Father and Son are united in will and purpose. Jesus prays in John 17, 11, that his followers may all be one, the same Greek word, en, that's to say, united in purpose, just as he and his father are united. That's a quotation from Professor Tasker, writing a commentary on the Gospel of John in the Tyndale Commentaries, written in 1983. Unitarians have always maintained for many centuries that I and the father are one simply means that 
Jesus and the Father are united in mind and purpose. The Trinitarian Erasmus saw the danger of pushing this verse beyond its natural meaning. I quote, I do not see how this text is of any value in confirming the opinion of the Orthodox or in restraining the pertinacity of the heretic. The meaning of the statement is quite clear in its context. Jesus has been talking about the Father preserving the sheep. Since Jesus' power is derived from his Father, that power is able to keep the sheep safe. Jesus and the Father are one in respect of the preservation of the sheep. John Calvin was at this point wiser than some of his modern exponents. He remarked that, quote, the ancients improperly used this passage to prove that Christ is of the same substance as the Father. For Jesus, says Calvin, does not argue concerning unity of substance, but speaks of his agreement with the Father so that whatever is done by Christ will be confirmed by the Father's power. Another Trinitarian authority observes that, quote, if the doctrine of the Trinity and the unity of essence be immediately inferred from John 10.30, this is a faulty application of the dogmatic system because the context of the passage is neglected. It is customary for Trinitarians to assume that the hostile Jewish impression of Jesus' words must be the correct one. Since they accused him of blasphemy and, quote, making himself equal with God, John 5, verse 18. Because of that, it is maintained that Jesus must have been making a Trinitarian claim. It is unfair to assume that the Jews had properly evaluated Jesus' words. If they had, there would have been no need for Jesus to justify himself further. He need only to have repeated that he was, in fact, the Supreme God. In his much-neglected response to the angry Jews in John 10, verses 34 to 36, Jesus argues, I quote, Since magistrates and judges are in Scripture expressly called gods, with lowercase g, it is unjust to charge me with blasphemy because I, whom the Father has appointed as the Messiah, and therefore one greater than all kings, superior to all prophets, I announce myself to be the Son of God, that is the Messiah, perfectly reflecting the will of my Father. Jesus links his own authority with that of the human lowercase gods, whom God so designated, as in Psalm 82, verses 1 and 6. Granting that he was far superior to any previous, quote, divine authority, a correct idea of his status is to be gained, so Jesus maintained, 
by considering that even Israelite leaders were entitled to be called, quote, gods with lowercase g. Jesus is the highest human authority fully and uniquely authorized by the Father. Trinitarian conviction about unity of substance causes them to misread John's, quote, sender stroke agent description of Jesus. In seeing Jesus, men were indeed seeing God. In believing in him, they were believing in God. In honoring him, they were honoring God. And in hating him, they were hating God. You'll find those statements in John 14, verse 9, John 12, verse 44, John 5, verse 23, and John 15, verse 23. None of this requires a Trinitarian explanation. John gives us a beautiful picture of a miraculous human individual in whom God has invested his spirit and to whom God has extended his authority and character. And all this in a way never seen before or since. Jesus is the unique ambassador for the one God. It is not that God has become a man, but that God has provided in the promised descendant of David, the man who is the raison d'etre of his cosmic plan. John 20, verse 28. The well-known words of Thomas to Jesus, I quote, my Lord and my God, are supposed to be decisive for the full deity of Christ. Jesus, however, had already denied being God. See above on John 10, verses 34 to 36. John distinguishes Jesus from the one and only God, his Father, in John 17, verse 3. Readers of the New Testament often do not realize that the word God can be applied to a representative of God. There's good evidence that John incorporates into his portrait of Jesus as Messiah ideas drawn from the Messianic Psalm 45. In answer to Pilate, Jesus declared that he was a king whose task was to bear witness to the truth. John 18, verse 37. There's an Old Testament background to this theme. Psalm 45 is written in praise of the Messiah, Hebrews 1, verse 8, who is addressed as most mighty and urged to, quote, ride prosperously in the cause of truth, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist foresees that the king's enemies, quote, will fall under you, in verse 5. The royal status of this leader is emphasized when the writer addresses him with the words, O God, as in Psalm 45, verse 6. The career of the Messiah, outlined in Psalm 45, is reflected in John's observation that Jesus' enemies recoiled at his claim to be the Messiah and, quote, fell to the ground, as we read in John 18, verse 6. For further information, see Rhymes' book, 
or article, Jesus as God in the Fourth Gospel, the Old Testament background, in an article found in New Testament Studies of 1984. Thomas' recognition of Jesus as God is a beautiful fulfillment of the psalm's highest address to the King of Israel. In that psalm, the Messiah is acclaimed as the church's Lord and, quote, God. But the God Messiah, so-called, has been appointed by his God, the one and only infinite God. Psalm 45, verse 7. Jesus himself was interested in the use of the word, quote, God for human rulers. John 10, verse 34, citing Psalm 82, verse 6. The Messiah is supremely entitled to be called, quote, God in this special sense, particularly because he embodies the word, lowercase w, which is itself theos, or God, John 1, Verse 1. It is possible that John adds one further statement about Jesus as, quote, God. He declares him to be, if this is the correct manuscript reading, the point is disputed, unique son, God, as in John 1.18. This is the ultimate messianic description expressing the fact that Jesus is the image of the one God. As Son of God, however, he is to be distinguished from the one who is underived, namely his Father. It remains a fact that John wrote his entire book to prove that Jesus was the Christ, John 20, verse 31, and that the God of Jesus is also the God of the disciples, John 20, verse 17. An unusual occurrence of theos in reference to Jesus should not overturn John's and Jesus' uniform insistence on the creed of Israel in Mark 12, verse 29. It is an unwarranted advance, and 2 John, verse 9, should be noted here. It is an advance beyond the intention of John to make him the innovator of the equation Christ equals the Supreme God. It is sufficient to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, Son of God. John 20, verse 31. First John 5, verse 20. Some writers who promote the idea that the New Testament calls Jesus God in the same sense as his Father, tell us that First John 5, verse 20, definitely says that Jesus is the true God. The text reads, and I quote, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we might know the true one, and we are in the true one, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and life eternal. Many Trinitarians do not think that Jesus is here described as the true God. Henry Alford, the distinguished British expositor and author of the famous commentary on the Greek Testament, refers to a tendency which has played a major role historically 
in the interpretation of the Bible. Henry Orford remarks that the fathers interpreted 1 John 5 verse 20 doctrinally rather than exegetically. In plain words, they were influenced much more by a desire to defend their already established theological position than a determination to give the actual meaning of the text. Orford compares John's statement about the one God in 1 John 5.20 with the structure of a similar sentence in the epistles of John. He also notes the obvious parallel in John 17.3 where Jesus is carefully distinguished from the one God. He concludes that the expositors seeking the plain sense of this passage will not see the phrase true God as a reference to Jesus, but to the Father. This, the Greek word there is utos, in the last sentence of 1 John 5.20, does not have to refer to the nearest noun, which is Jesus Christ in this case. Henry Alford cites two passages from John's epistles to make his point. I quote, who is the liar? but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. 1 John 2, verse 22. Quote, For many deceivers went forth into the world, namely they who do not confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. 2 John, verse 7. From these two passages, it is clear that the word this does not necessarily refer back to the immediately preceding noun. If it did, it would make Jesus the deceiver and the antichrist. The pronoun this in 1 John 5.20 refers rather to the preceding phrase, him who is true, describing the Father, not Jesus. If we compare John 17.3, we shall see that 1 John 5 verse 20 is an echo of that verse. I quote, This is eternal life, that they should believe in you, the Father, the only true God, and in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. In his book, The Trinity in the New Testament, the Trinitarian Arthur Wainwright comes to the same conclusion. He does not think that Jesus is called true God in 1 John 5.20. Henry Orford, who had the highest regard for the scriptures, concludes, I own I cannot see. After this saying of our Lord, you are the only true God, John 17.3, I do not see how anyone can imagine that the same apostle can have had in these words, John 17.3, any other reference than that which is given in those, in 1 John 5, verse 20. That's a quotation from Henry Orford's Greek New Testament commentary. If we carefully weigh the evidence, it seems beyond question that John never departed from belief in the unipersonal God of his Old Testament heritage. This brings him in line with his beloved master, who likewise never veered 
from devotion to the one God of Israel, as defined by Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. The argument from history, since Scripture is the final arbiter in matters of Christian belief, many may not feel a need to examine Trinitarianism from a historical point of view. To others, it will be of interest to learn that the doctrine of the Trinity, as it was solidified at Nicaea in 325 AD and Chalcedon in 451 AD, this was the end product of a process of development. It is quite impossible to demonstrate belief in three co-equal, co-eternal persons from the Christian writings before the end of the second century. This fact is widely recognized by Trinitarian scholars. Roman Catholics frankly admit that their doctrine of the Trinity came to them not from the Bible, but from post-biblical tradition. Cardinal Hosea's remark from the 16th century deserves to be heard. I quote, we believe the doctrine of a triune God because we've received it by tradition, though it is not mentioned at all in Scripture. That's from Cardinal Hosea's Confessio Fidei Christiana, written in 1553. The remarks of another Roman Catholic scholar present Trinitarians with a similar challenge. I quote that the Son is of the same essence as the Father, or consubstantial with him, is not manifest in any part of sacred scripture, either by express words or by certain and immutable deduction. These and other opinions of the Protestants no one can prove from the sacred writings the traditional word of God being laid aside, Scripture itself would in many places have seemed to exhibit the opposite unless the Church had taught us otherwise. That's a statement from James Mesenius in a work Apud Sandium. Some Protestant theologians, while remaining Trinitarians, have admitted the difficulty of basing the Trinity on the Bible. It must be owned that the doctrine of the Trinity, as it is proposed in our, that's to say, Church of England articles, our liturgy, our creeds, is not, in so many words, taught us in the Holy Scriptures. What we profess in our prayers, we nowhere read in Scripture. That the one God, the one Lord, is not only one person, but three persons in one substance. There is no such text in the scripture as this, that quote, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshiped. None of the inspired writers has expressly affirmed that in the Trinity, none is before or after the other, none is greater, or less than the other, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. That's a statement from Bishop George Smallridge in a collection of 60 sermons preached on several occasions. 
If the Trinity had its origin in the Bible, we would expect to be able to trace it back to an unbroken tradition through the earliest post-biblical writers. But can this be done? There are many in the Trinitarian camp who confess the difficulty in finding Trinitarianism in the writings of leading exponents of the faith before the Council of Nicaea. The facts have been documented in an informative article by Mark Matteson in an article entitled The Development of Trinitarianism in the Patristic Period, published in a journal from the Radical Reformation in 1992. See also Mark Madison's book, The Making of a Tradition. Quoting original sources as well as standard authorities, Madison demonstrates that, quote, Trinitarianism of Justin Martyr and Theophilus involve a clear element of subordination in the Son. Irenaeus also of the second century speaks of the Father as Aftotheos, God in himself. The divinity of the Son is derived from that of the Father. This is not true of developed Trinitarianism in which all three persons are co-equal. Tertullian, around 160 to 225 AD, believed in the pre-existence of the Son but expressly denied his eternity. But God has not always been father and judge merely on the ground of his having always been God, for he could not have been the father previous to the son, nor a judge previous to sin. There was, however, a time when neither sin existed nor the son. That's a quotation from Tertullian in his work against Hermogenes. Another influential church father, Origen, around 185 to 254 AD, clearly did not think of Christ as co-equal with the Father. In his commentaries on John, he maintains that, quote, God, the Logos, i.e. the Son, is, and I quote, surpassed by the God of the universe. That's from his commentary on John. The Son, Origen also said, is in no respect to be compared with the Father, for he is the image of his goodness and the effulgence not of God, but of his glory and of his eternal life. Although Origen was the first to develop the idea of the eternal Son, he insists on the subordinate position of Christ. I quote, The Father who sent Jesus is alone good and greater than he who was sent. Origen actually denied that prayer should be offered to Jesus and taught that he is not the object of supreme worship. That's from Origen's treatise on prayer. The Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church points out that Origen considered the Son to be, quote, 
divine only in a lesser sense than the Father. The Son is Theos, God, but only the Father is Aftotheos, that's to say, absolute God, God in himself. The earliest apologists, so-called, and church fathers, were not Trinitarian in the same sense as the later Creed of Nicaea. This fact may be verified by reading the original writings of these exponents of the faith or by consulting standard authorities on church history. A 19th century German scholar wrote, and I quote, the doctrinal system of the anti-Nicene church is irreconcilable with the letter and authority of the formularies of the Constantinian and in general of the Byzantine councils and with the medieval system built upon them. That's a quotation from C.C. Bunsen in his book Christianity and Mankind. This fact is just as obvious in the 20th century. The Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology states that subordinationism, and I quote, was in fact characteristic of pre-Nicene Christology. Origen, for example, had thought in terms of a hierarchy of being in which God the Father was the ultimate one and the Logos was the mediating link between the ultimate and created essences. That's a quotation from an item by Francis Young entitled Subordinationism, found in the Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology, written in 1983. Taking its impetus from the Council of Nicaea, the later Athanasian Creed attributed complete co-equality to the three persons of the Godhead. If Trinitarianism demands, quote, the eternal sonship of Christ, the earliest post-biblical writers were heretics, and even Origen fell short of what would be an acceptable creed in most Trinitarian circles today. Conclusion. It appears that expert Trinitarian exegesis often weakens the attempts to base the Trinity on Scripture. There are no texts advanced in support of the orthodox understanding of the Godhead, which have not been assigned another interpretation by Trinitarians themselves. Can the biblical doctrine of God really be so obscure? It may just be simpler to accept the Shema of Israel as affirmed enthusiastically by Jesus in Mark 12:29, with its belief in a unipersonal God. Since this was the creed spoken by Jesus himself, it would seem to have an absolute claim to be the Christian creed. Nothing of the glory of the Son is lost if he's recognized as the unique human representative of God, the second Adam, for whom God created the whole universe and whom the Father resurrected to immortality. His position as judge of mankind in Psalm 110 verse 1 reflects the exalted 
non-deity status of his messiahship, yet he derives all authority from the Father.